Hello, everybody. Welcome. <laughs> I don't know why I'm doing this. <laughs> he one. leaned into the mic like a creep. Yes, I love I that. Uh, I like that. Hello, hello, everyone. Hello, everyone. Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Director Peace Theater. Uh, you know, sometimes you just want to listen to a podcast about you know directors just talking about the craft. And little interesting things about movies that they saw, and then they they like talk about it for a little bit, and that's what this is. This is Director Peace Theater. I'm Abe mm-hmm. Epperson, and today we have an episode that's going to be introduced by the man himself. Wow, the man himself, Adam Ganser. Uh, thank uh, you for thank you for that boost up. I really love it. You deserve it. Uh, man. Thank you, thank you. Uh, speaking of boosted <laughs> up, did you think I was trolling you when I said this movie? To so you? I just said to him as soon as we yeah. like signed on, and this was offline, but I'll, re- I'll repeat it. Uh, when I watched, started watching this movie, I'd never seen it. All I knew is that it's uh, directed by Soderbergh, which you know I find he's hit and miss. Uh, but I usually like him. Yeah. I started watching it, yeah, and he- I was like, "Oh, Adam." <laughs> yeah. Oh no! I was what did you think? It, what did you think I was trying to say with it? Like, what I, did you, what did you think I was doing here? This is going to reveal a lot about like what I dynamic. think of you. <laughs> no, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, this is uh, like I don't know because like I was like I was legitimately lost. I was like, does he think this is good? No, he can't. Right. Wait, right. there's has there been times that Adam has like. Did I just miss something? Does sometimes randomly Adam yeah. not have good taste? And I like, no, there's something else. But uh, yeah, I hate I this movie sucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and I think the tricky thing about it is you can imagine how somebody who has slightly pretentious tastes, which I do, like how I might <laughs> find some like corner of like, this is really good. You know what uh-huh. I mean? That we That's might really disagree might on. Happen. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yeah, I guess, and that's completely reasonable because that was the thing that drew me to the theater to watch this in 2002. Mm, perfect. Was like, ooh, this is going to be this like art house, uh, like cool flick, like sort of like Sex Lies and Videotape, uh, right. which, by the way, is how they build it. Uh, and right. it's not. It's not that at all. Uh, yeah. You know, Let's it's not that at all. the secret lives of stars. Yeah, right, right. And so, like, uh, I mean, okay, well, let me just do my intro here, because like, there's a lot to say about just that. Yeah, take uh, me through so, it. So this is a film by Steven Soderbergh. Um, I've talked about Steven Soderbergh before, because we did an Ocean's Eleven episode. Um, this movie is his first movie after Ocean's Eleven. And in 2002, Soderbergh was basically the hottest director in Hollywood. Um, he just won the Best Director Oscar for Traffic in 2000. Um, he'd won it against himself. He was nominated twice for Best Director in the same year because he was also nominated for Aaron Brockovich, which is just wild. Um, he was also coming off the success of Ocean's Eleven. It's such a successful movie, they still are trying to make versions of it. In fact, there was a headline recently that he's considering making an Ocean's, uh, I think it would be 14. Like they're they're trying to find a way to do to, it. Yeah, trying to get him yeah. to do it. Like that's yeah. the secret sauce. yeah. Right, he's the secret sauce. Exactly, he he's kind of the key ingredient, um, because at that point in two thousand two, he's basically almost identical to Spielberg in terms of influence. Like he can get any actor he wants at any time for any project. Yeah, that's true. He can he can direct any blockbuster he wants. 
Like, if he wants to do an action movie, it happens, right? Mm-hmm. He can make a serious drama anytime he wants. Basically, he's like, he's got carte blanche. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I that to me is like what I might call the Spielberg tier. Spielberg's not the only one in that tier. I would say the Coen brothers have been in that tier at times. Right. Uh, and a few other people. But, you know, he Terrence Malick's been in that tier once or twice. Uh, that's where he was in 2002. Um, and, I mean, so that already is like, wow, this guy's a huge success. Uh, so this movie's already like, what? Why did he make this movie then? Uh, so there's that. The other thing that I think is just really interesting about Soderbergh, and uh, it matters for this movie, is um, Soderbergh is one of the only filmmakers who also... Uh, is the director of photography for his own films, which means not only does he direct the actors, but he directs camera and the light, and he does it exclusively. Uh, There are very few directors who can do this. Um, Like Tarantino has tried it. Uh, I think he's only tried it once. He tried it on his Grindhouse movie, which, you know, isn't like canonical Tarantino in some ways. Mm -hmm. Um, Never went back to it. P.T. Anderson recently tried it, in uh, the Phantom Thread, and he only tried it because his long-term DP was not available. And this is a quote from Ellsworth, him about that process. Yeah, yeah Ellsworth wasn't available. Uh, so P.T. Anderson says, I know how to point the camera in a good direction, and I know a few things, but I'm not a director of photography. It's such a perfect P.T. Anderson quote, because, <laughs> yeah. yeah, he like the energy of P.T.A. is always like, Man, I'm just trying to live, man. <laughs> like he's he's, right. he, he's like directly out of like dazed and confused. It's yeah, hilarious. He acts that way. He acts that way for sure. Now, I've seen camera tests for Phantom Thread. Uh so like I just want to assure you, he did try to be a like he wasn't like a He's not a stoner comedy behind the camera. You know what I mean? Like he's oh, really yeah, trying. Oh yeah, he's gonna. He's a professional as well. Absolutely. Just, well, yeah. he was testing everything. He had the key actors show up to do makeup and wardrobe tests. He had Daniel Day Lewis there doing makeup and wardrobe tests. Right. Uh, now I know that's kind of like complicated for the audience. So like briefly, professional filmmakers often when they get into a certain. Uh, budget range they'll do what's called a camera test and a camera test is basically like before you start shooting the movie you'll like settle on some like camera and aesthetic choices by putting them in front of lens swapping out lenses swapping out lights swapping out makeup and figure out oh this is actually the look that i want to achieve in the film and these are the parameters of the film yeah um yeah it's a pretty simple process but it's also very technical you never get lead actors to do it but pt anderson got his leads for the film to do it so he was pretty dedicated to being a dp is the point yeah and and he uh, also has you know these relationships with these people so he could probably ask and they were probably like yeah sure man but uh, exactly it's one of the things that i'm sure on that higher level because there's like an insulation system that is a standard kind of boilerplate in which way uh, in in terms of in which these things are done, that my guess is that they don't do it because it's beneath them, quote unquote. And he was invisible to that, or didn't care. Like he didn't. Could be. Yeah. Yeah. He, could he, be. He was just like, ah, I'll just do it because I can get away with it. Or he was just like, oh, is that not typically done? I always forget that. I I, I have a third. I'll, I have an alternative theory, which is. I think a lot of directors who try to be DPs after they've been directors are so insecure about being a DP because mm-hmm. it's such a it's a difficult job, and no matter what anybody says, it is a different skill set. 
that they need the comfort of directing talent and stuff there to like do it. Reminds it. That I'm directing though. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's true. Yes. That's true. that's that's my theory. I you know yeah. I haven't talked to him. I don't that's know. Probably the best one. I can tell. Well, I can tell you. I only DP'd. Well, I DP'd some things for Cracked, which was a huge waste of their money. But like I DP'd a few things in film school uh, when I also directed, and I abandoned that the second I could. I hated doing them both mm-hmm. uh, because the lights stressed me out. Like setting up lights really stressed me out. It was like, okay, so I don't like I, you know, I got to put three lights here, and all I wanted to focus on was the like the what I perceived to be the storytelling pieces, which lighting didn't seem to me to be, but it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just don't have any talent at it <laughs> so like that's why i hate doing it you, i mean you have more talent at it than most people you uh, went to yeah, film but, school but for like, it you understand not, the concepts yes but not a professional level talent and i'm not a, a I can natural dp yeah. i think no. that's fair i think yeah no. i think camera i holding camera is harder to be natural than lighting to me that's funny because uh, I feel the opposite. So, you know, different skill sets. Mm-hmm. Uh, all this is germane to illustrate how talented Steven Soderbergh really is. Right. Because, like, he can direct actors. He's very good at directing actors. And he can, like, light these big budget pictures. And, you know, they come out great. Uh, and there's just not very many people that can do that. Um, so it's, int- he also, by the way, he lit Ocean's Eleven. Like if you listen to the behind the scenes commentary, there's a lot of like, ah, why did I light it like that? Which makes me laugh. Um, he, so he, he's at this point in his career. It's really sort of like how much higher can you go? You know, like not much higher than where he is. And then he makes this movie full frontal. Um, and full frontal was basically panned, you know, like it was basically panned. Mm-hmm. Nobody really liked it. Audiences yeah. didn't like it. Critics didn't like it. Roger Ebert said, and I, uh, Roger Ebert's uh, review is a, is a treasure in this case. Uh, he called it a film so amateurish that only the professionalism of some of its actors, not all of his actors, by the way, makes it watchable. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, yeah. Yeah, Ebert's, basically, I love that Ebert's basically saying the only reason I cared to watch this movie is because, like, it said Brad Pitt was in it, and I like right. Brad Pitt, right? And I like, you know, I like a few Julia of the people. Julia Roberts, in it. yeah. Well, evis- good, fine. So I'm gonna, yeah, let's go. <laughs> he eviscerated. That's an evisceration of a of a movie by a recent <clears throat> Best Director winner. So like, it's like that's cutting good. out. It's like cutting out. Like, all right, so you know the the parts of filmmaking that aren't the writing, directing, and like shot selection and like painterly approach to it, you know, Soderbergh, all the stuff that you did, that stuff may have been okay. Right. Exactly. That's exactly right. Like he's carving a little escape hatch for that. It's exactly right. So look, this episode is, is basically, uh, I, I, we're going to do some examination of techniques and theory and stuff and a little bit of like text reading for the, for what this thing means to answer the question, why did Steven Soderbergh make this movie? What does he want to say? Uh, and what do we learn about directing as a craft and him as a director specifically as a result? That's where we're going. So so let me just lead off and alleviate my, my best buddy Abe's fears. Uh, full Frontal <laughs> is absolutely full of shit. Oh, thank <laughs> like, God. It is, it is a bad movie. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, now, it's a bad movie in the sense that uh, it's intentionally opaque. Like it, it does not want to be understood. Uh, it's vague. 
Uh, it never draws clear conclusions. Um, it intentionally misleads you at times. And uh, it also makes a lot of like symbolic offers or like symbolic, like it alludes to like a deeper symbology uh, that it never fully satisfies. Mm, chef's kiss. And, Not the movie. Yeah, your description yeah, of the yeah, movie. Yeah. Right? So like, and that's the thing about the movie is when you're watching it, you're assuming, well, it's all like it's we're all building to some cool thing, right? Like that's that's what the movie portends when you're watching it. I think that's the draw of it is that oh, we're going to get to this really cool revelation or intimacy or whatever. And it's like basically kind of a waiting for Godot. It 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 you dances know? around it so closely and like yeah, cuz it, it's this um disarming kind of viewing experience because um right. and he may have known about this, which is I tried in many times in scenes to go like, he knows I'm thinking this right now. What does that mean? And I could never come up with anything. Uh, but it's disarming because it's like you see the good actors there. Right. The, uh, it, the pacing and like the even though the shots are bad in, in some instance, which you're going to go into, like even though it feels like it feels like a movie, like there's something behind the wheel there. Uh, there is just nothing to latch on to at any time. And it feels juicy. It feels like, oh, you're about to turn and say something. Right. That's going to be kind of knock my socks off. And But it just avoids those but moments. But it never does. Yeah, it never it like, does. It, it like goes right up to the precipice and then walks away. And, and I'm like, and, that's weird. And you know, and I know, as like even the level of director we have so far become, we like you can see the setups a mile away. Right. Like like it's very clear that this is being done by a person who does understand what the setups mean mm-hmm. but refuses to answer like so I'm seeing this as sort of a refusal to meet those requests like those offers like because he's done it so successfully so many times one presumes mm-hmm. like he couldn't have completely missed the mark here right that's that, I guess that's an assumption that I've made in this whole episode is Steven Soderbergh didn't just lose his mind and completely lose his thread here I think he's doing it on purpose right. uh, so that's the assumption if you want to argue no it's not on purpose I, you know that's not a, not you Abe but you the audience it's like yeah, th- yeah. that's not what we're going to deal with in this episode so one thing that he does, I think, really exquisitely is misleading, uh, like sort of set up set up expectations that he's not going to be. Um, and it starts with the title. Right. So the, the movie title, Full Frontal, I've never heard a person react to that title uh, in a way that was what you might call commiserate to the movie that it actually <laughs> labels. Right. Everyone yeah. reacts to Full Frontal like, oh, right. That sounds uh, that sounds then? like it's going to be something. Right, it it implies a kind of certain set of expectations, like that there's going to be some juicy or potentially exploitative or forbidden elements to it. Right, and I right. don't even just mean nakedness. I mean like, like ooh, full frontal. That's like as as hardcore as it gets in movies, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this movie sort of implies either that or it's going to be very intimate. And instead, the movie is extremely mundane, like like. All, almost intentionally boring uh, oh, with yeah. some of its arcs. Uh, and also its depictions of arcs that could have been juicier. You know, like I would say, for instance, the physical therapist's sister, she has kind of an interesting story, and yet it's rendered in the most bland way you can imagine. There's the ex- one dramatic scene in the entire movie. Which one would you say it is? 
uh, the hand job scene. Yes, which is with her. That and that is great. And uh, that's also, by the way, the only way that the title "Full Frontal" gets actually uh, is met. even yeah. possibly relevant. I guess yeah. "Full Frontal" in terms of like an op-ed, you know. Right. Well, uh, uh, you're gonna. Julia I, Roberts is writing a, you know, an op-ed on it, right? So yeah. it has some. It has some connection to the plot. When you find out, if you haven't read ahead, when you find out how it actually got its name, it's going to be like, oh, my God. So, like, uh, this, by the way, so one of the big conceits of the film, if you haven't seen it, because I think it's probably fair to assume a lot of our listeners have not seen this movie. So the major conceit of the film is that there are basically two parallel storylines, okay? The first storyline is being done in a visual palette of 35 millimeter, your standard Hollywood production. And that is a movie. A movie that is being made, and we're see, and we see some behind the scenes elements of this movie as the story goes along, right? So, and that movie, by the way, the film world of it is called Rendezvous. So, just we'll remember that anytime we talk just about the generic. film world, yes. and that's like clearly a nod to like let's think of the most generic rom com, yes, absolutely. So that's the that's the palette that he chose to be, and so you immediately your brain is like. Oh, so he's gonna like destroy the thing he's talking. Right, he, he's been making, and Julia Roberts there. She was in. Uh, she was in Ocean's Eleven. That means and Aaron he's gonna, Yeah, so yeah. that means this is gonna all be like a thing, right? right. He's gonna That's say right. stuff about how this is all Hollywood schlock, right? And he kind of does, and he kind of doesn't. So <laughs> the other piece of the palette here is that most of the movie, and what you might call the main narrative of the movie, is being told through a DV cam, essentially, which is shot on, I believe it was an XL1. Yeah. yeah. Uh, an XL1, which is also by the way. It is you clever. two visual strategies in your movie. Yes. That's like, okay, I see where you're going here. Yes. An XL1, by the way, looks like shit. It looks very bad. It's milky. It's bl- like it's you don't get details. Yeah, DVK uh, in general looks. It like looks. Garbage. It looks horrible. Uh, it's not even HD level resolution. Uh, it looked bad at the time. It looks even worse now. So mm-hmm. like it was a bold choice. And of course, the idea here being that uh, you know, like we're gonna get this interesting contrast. Uh, like the reality of the movie, the real world is going to be murkier and grimier and like, you know, more difficult to interpret. Whereas the film world is going to be this sort of glossy satirical thing, like you said, and he doesn't really do that. Like the most the, the obvious comparisons don't get made, really. Uh, so that's a mislead. Um, so also, mm-hmm. you know, the title Full Frontal implies that it's going to be explicit, right? Like that it's going to be uh, intense. It's not. Uh, sure, like you said, we have that hand job scene, but it's mostly played for comedy, mm-hmm. um, and sort of in a dead flat way, like not in a big, not in a. It's never. There's never a, se- a sexy moment in this movie. Never. No. There's never a no, sexy moment in the movie. In fact, it's. It seems like it's doing the thing where it's like Hollywood producers, uh, monsters, right? Right. You know, right. like that seems to be what it's trying to say, which you know, let's be sure. frank. <laughs> Sure. He probably has more insight into that than most of us. Well, that's uh, he definitely does because uh, – so just briefly, the film has no kinkiness or luridness at all. Like So everything implied by that title is sort of all uh, what you might call sound and fury. It signifies nothing, right? Mm-hmm. Now, the only kinky thing about the title is that it was actually suggested by Harvey Weinstein. 
<laughs> so oh, he, boy. yes, he is the one that said to Steven full Soderbergh, frontal. maybe we should call uh, it Full Frontal. Yes, yes, because the original title. Shoot me. Yeah, the original title is How to Survive a Hotel Room Fire. These, and then, these are the minds that get far <laughs> in this business, in yeah. this industry of ours. Yeah. These yeah. minds are the ones that get paid dividends. Isn't that horrible? Uh, the two, yeah. the two makes titles want to. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. horrible. Yeah, <laughs> for yeah. all the reasons, not yeah. the ones that affect me. It's not even really. I mean, like, it's not even a self-aware, ironic thing, really. Um, it, I guess you know you could maybe give Soderbergh some far, far-reaching credit by like allowing Harvey to have that kind of influence over this film. I don't know, but mm-hmm. he probably didn't have that kind of control is the truth. By the way, Harvey Weinstein is represented in the movie. Jeff Garland's cl- paying, playing a character called, I believe Harvey probably. <laughs> so like, he's clearly... legitimately the only good joke in the movie. And it's like, a, yeah, above yeah. Average it's, a, joke. it's a throwaway. I think there are good jokes that are delivered in the most, uh, like in the most anti-comedy way you can imagine. Right. I don't think, which is another way in my mind of saying like Soderbergh isn't funny and that's fine. Well, see again, I bring up oceans 11 because there's a lot of genuinely funny moments in that movie. And none of Uh, them are designed. They're not. All of them are off the cuff, like improv. Fair enough. I mean, also out of sight has some funny moments. I think he can do comedy a little bit. Like, I don't think he can do like a real, real comedy, like a heavy comedy. I think he can do. Yeah. An action movie that has comedy bits though. Uh, He knows how a joke should go. Uh, he, but he, this is actually more of an attempt to make a comedy, I would say, than Ocean's Eleven is. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, which is just fascinating. So, okay, so another way that this film is, like, misleading, and Abe's kind of alluded to it already, um, it is the narrative structure, right? So, like, the structure itself, uh, it suggests that all these different lives we're following are gonna end up sort of tethering together in some either thematic or like actual scene, like a, like a dramaturgical way. So, cause you know, when we're being introduced to all these characters, we get sort of a short bio of them, like talking to an interviewer. We never meet mm-hmm. like a documentary interviewer. We never meet. And they, we get these very opaque, like insights into their character that are sort of confessional. Uh, and we're like, Oh, okay. So, you know, this is all going to tie together in some way, like uh, like a 21 grams or something, you know? Uh, yeah, these stories will coalesce and it'll be a yeah. moment or something yeah. like that or a right. thematic resonant like cathartic like landing for all these for all these people where they're like realize they're trash or something right and uh yeah and then that doesn't happen uh in fact Soderbergh also sets up like an actual event where that should happen which is Gus's birthday party like everybody sort of is tangentially related to Gus's birthday party, although a few characters aren't. Yeah. Uh, Gus, by the way, being David Duchovny. Gus being David Duchovny, which is a fun Duchovny, which is a fun uh, like reveal. Uh, and yeah. the Gus's birthday party ends up being like literally waiting for Godot, and also sort of metaphorically waiting for Godot, where like he doesn't show up, and also the meaning that we're looking for doesn't show up. Uh, because even though the party gets awkward because he doesn't show up, uh, nothing happens there that feels like cathartic. Yeah. Right. Like even Catherine Keener's character, who's sort of, I would say the main character of the film, 
Um, her character's name is Lee. She we're following her story probably the most out of anybody's stories. And she starts the movie with like she wants to divorce her husband, uh, Carl, who's played by uh, David Hyde Pierce. And he's very good in this movie, as he's is she actually really good. Yeah, yeah they're I both good in this movie. Um, yeah. She yeah, she writes good. a yeah, she writes a note like I'm going to divorce you. Uh, but, you know, more flowery sentiment than that. And she writes it on a red stationery, which sort of parallels the movie Rendezvous uh, in a very obnoxious way. But that doesn't mean anything, which is stupid. Right. Uh, and then at the end of the movie, she retracts it before he sees it because of the events of this party. But the events of the party are also like, so she's just kind of a drunk maniac. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, why does she do this? Right. Why does she become this drunk? You know, I understand she wanted this affair to work out. It doesn't. But that means she loses all control. I don't I, like that. Doesn't make the, sense the, to me. Did the it make closest sense to you? thing I could see is that like the you know like assholes beget assholes. Like because we saw earlier that she does this weird ritual with a ball where people name countries, yeah, yeah. Uh, in Africa to kind of be disarming to people. So like that she's interviewing or just as a power play. She's she's firing all of those people. By the way, right? Those are yeah, all so firings. She's, she's a maniac. Yeah, and in the party, yeah. she's a drunk maniac. But the feeling is that you get is that she doesn't, she will not allow anyone else to have power, you know, like she I mean, must yeah, I exert guess. influence. That's I the guess. closest I got to it. Right. Uh, and she's like the closest thing to like a main character we have, like their relationship is much deeper than any other relationship in the movie or right. has more screen time. So like just contrast. So like another movie that sort of revolves around a party like that is a movie like the celebration also, by the way, right. shot on lo-fi uh, mediums. TV cam, yeah. Great movie. If you haven't seen it, uh, the celebration revolves around this party at, at a Danish, a well-to-do 60 year old guys party. And at the party, one of the sons reveals that uh, their father molested them when they were kids. Right. And, uh, and like, so every subsequent interaction and, uh, gathering builds on that until there's a catharsis at the end, right? Mm -hmm. That's how you do this. Right. Uh, and instead the party ended up being kind of just like a, like a bummer beat of a Curb Your Enthusiasm episode or something, but without the laugh, you know? Uh, so anyway, so yeah, we didn't get any catharsis out of her. We didn't get any catharsis out of Julia Roberts character, Francesca, another character we've been following all along who sort Mm -hmm. of meets a, like finally meets somebody she can really care about because we don't, we don't care about her investment in relationships, even though it's a theme, right? Like, do you, did you care about that when it happened? No, because she also doesn't seem to care or she doesn't. Like when we see the quote unquote real version of her the first time, it's like she is distancing herself from people. So you go, oh, so I guess the, the reality is the thing that I'm supposed to see is that movies are fake. Oh, okay, good, got it. Yeah. Okay, and and then you and then that itself is revealed to be fake, and you go, okay, uh, yeah. okay, so yeah, everything's yeah. fake. Got okay, got it. Yes. So so why do I care? Um, you know, what you said reminded me, though, because you were talking about when you were talking about uh, Waiting for Godot. What this movie reminds me a lot of is Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Though Tom Stoppard has way more, like, he has such an ability to mimic the format of the thing that it's, like, parodying. And I don't mm-hmm. even think there, there's a thing 
that he's trying to parody here. So it's not a one to one, but this, the realization that it's like, you're seeing off screen characters that don't matter. And then it's like, at the end of the story, you're like, yeah. And also they don't matter. Like it never did matter. Like the setup was that they, none of this mattered. Right. You know? Um, and I'm getting strong vibes from this movie of that. Like that is the nail in the coffin. That's like the kind of like how we should, Sally forth after this movie thinking this movie told us nothing yet somehow we're better for it. Right. But but it, we're better like, for know. it. And yet you yeah. can't, you can't articulate why uh, I agree. Like that is the, the first and most obvious intelligent reading of the film, which right. is like everything here is nothing. Uh, and, and I mean, he Soderbergh Soderbergh goes out of his way to reinforce that with his uh, deployment of meta narratives that also are misleads. Right. Mm -hmm. So like the biggest yeah, one annoying. Yeah, they are. So like the biggest one is at the very end of the film, spoilers, uh, we pull out of the documentary. Like there's a scene on the documentary with two people on a plane and then the camera pulls back and reveals the plane is actually a set. And this whole documentary has been a film that's been made. Uh, so like even these, quote unquote real lives we've been watching are also fake. And then you're like, so why? Right? Like so why right. did that happen? You're like, so it's a fake within a fake. Right. It's a fake within a fake. Exactly. It renders everything that happened on both in both levels right. meaningless. Now I will point out a couple things here. So this was apparently intentionally a nod to a Tarkovsky film called Nostalgia. And Soderbergh was also making a Tarkovsky remake at the time. Uh, Solaris, if Which, you haven't seen that. Mm -hmm. That's and a great that movie, is, by the way. I love that movie. It's very good. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think anyone who tries to get in the mind of Tarkovsky goes a little insane. So It could be. That could be why. <laughs> that could also be the you know silver bullet of this theory is Soderbergh just decided to go Kar Tarkovsky on us And Tarkovsky all. fucked him up, right? Yeah. Yeah, it yeah. could be. I mean, uh, that's also possible. So, yeah, I it, there's really nothing I could add to that other than like that's sure. actually yeah. possible. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's whatever. Yeah, I mean, another meta narrative thing that he introduces throughout are these sort of like, uh, I guess what we might call them, like just sort of elements or narrative tropes that he introduces and sort of echo throughout the movie. One of them is the green pea, a thing that they keep repeating. Like David Hyde Pierce's character Carl mentions he had a dream where he peed green and like pickle juice, he says. And like it keeps being repeated at various points. And then the masseuse sees the green pea in Gus's bathroom when she does the hand job. And, mm -hmm. and it's like, why was that there? No reason. It's just there. Uh, also, yeah. the red envelope. It's like poetry. It rhymes. Right. It rhymes, but also, like, neither stanza seemed to comment on the other in a way I could understand. Uh, yeah. there's, there's also the red envelope, which I mentioned, uh, mm. which the red envelope infuriates me for reasons I'll talk about in a minute. Uh, also the Brad Pitt magazine covers, <laughs> all mm. of them are covers that were written by Carl. So it implies mm -hmm. that Carl is sort of the author of not only the fictional universe, but the real, I'm going to put that in quotes, real universe of the, of the documentary. And like... <laughs> <laughs> like it's like so what yeah. you know what I mean so what I don't like so what does that mean? I mean see see the airplane scene you right. know like right, right, where, right. where it's a it's revealed it's a set same same maneuver now don't the, know what it means the thing is though and I like I can't keep reinforcing this enough because Abe and I will keep 
like we'll keep saying this over and over because it's true. Don't know what it means doesn't mean anything. But as a director, you're deploying these tropes because they make the audience uh, try to discover the meaning in them. Right? They're invitations for meaning. And uh, and the fact that Soderbergh very carefully deploys them this way, but then has this meta narrative ending that undercuts them all, like you just said, uh, suggests that symb- like symbolism in itself is sort of not an effectual uh, avenue for meaning, which is very pretty crazy. It's a pretty crazy, like a very high art kind of argument to make. I loved mm-hmm. Ebert's comment on this. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Here's what it was. There's no use trying to unsort it all because Soderbergh hasn't made it sortable. If the movie is a satire of the sorts on of incomprehensible, earnest, personal films that would-be directors hand out on cassettes at film festivals, then I understand <laughs> it. It's the mm-hmm. kind of film where you need the director telling you what he meant to do and what went wrong and how the actor screwed up and how there's no money for retakes, etc. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It feels like it's it like does. Uh... It does. It feels like works in progress is, I think, what Ebert's getting at, uh, and right. he's right about that. Right. So, uh, okay. So I don't want to like do this over and over. So, like, uh, let me briefly resummarize uh, another way that this movie is full of shit. So, <laughs> the 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 dual structure, which I've I think explained at this point, but just to reinforce it. So the structure of there being an actual film that looks like a Hollywood film that is the movie Rendezvous written by Carl in the other universe, which is the the low art XL1 footage, that's the documentary. Um, they both follow different rules, right? So Rendezvous follows typical film rules. Uh, it's shot in 35. It focuses almost exclusively on this relationship between Julia Roberts and Blair Underwood. As she like interviews him, he's an actor who's like kind of struggling, it seems. Uh, and then he, in that film, he gets a red letter. And in it is this like love confession that had to be written by her. Right? So she leaves him a note. Right. And then when he confronts her with it, she denies it. And he presumably at least if it first like plays around with it and like makes jokes, but then he acts like a little bit like an asshole about it. He's, oh, he's yeah. sort of like, are you fucking kidding me? Like what? Like you did this, right? And she denies yeah. it. So then you're like, well, did she do it or not? You don't know. Uh, and then later on, she does it again and admits to it. And uh, it, it's like this weird, like swerve and then an anti swerve. And so you're left at the end with this, with this romance of that movie being like, so why didn't she just admit to it the first time? Like, what was the what was the purpose right. of this meandering gonna, thing? Yeah, and so and it, by the way, the second time because it's in the movie, it, the movie being made inside the movie. Yeah, the behind the scenes uh, rendezvous. Uh, it like it's it works the second time. It's like right. supposed to be that moment in the rom com where it's like, oh, I'm at the train station. I'm running to you and we're going to hug and kiss it out because I made the choice kind of thing. Like she confides basically she shows up in her red, you know, parka and that has fucking a red, red parka. Yeah. Dude, the I, red coat dude. is insane. Well, it's fire engine red. It's and just like, like and that's another tilting it's awful. of yeah, yeah, it's awful. It's it's like like I know that the audience will be like, "Is it really that bad?" Yes, man, it's really bad. It's a color that right. you don't wear in real life, and Blair Underwood's wearing like a crimson color that actually looks bad next to it. 
Yeah, it's so very strange. It's he well, looks it's like, it looks it's brown and yeah, gross. It's a bad it, yeah. decision because it's intentionally make it's and it's loud. intentional. It makes yeah. her look bad, and it also is trying to tell you, look, the letter's the same color as the jacket. She clearly wrote it. That's what's right, happening exactly. And uh, I'm so I wanted to because I don't see it in your notes. Yeah, yeah. Can we talk about like so once they kind so once we have the natural like kind of consequence of rom-com kind of deal mm-hmm. they're now in bed like kissing and uh and like it's horrible each other, yeah they're facing in, in each other's faces that was so that, dumb yeah yeah that yeah. was to me like what uh he was saying right like the whole time with this movie yes, is yes, absolutely because the way they act is like so like i don't know how to describe it it's just like um they are so like pompously like kissing like it's like making fun of the idea of like oh yeah i love you so much it's a bad romance giving eskimo kisses yeah uh like it's like sloppy kisses but also they just rub cheeks together and close their (laughs) eyes like coyly and they it's just they're just like yeah smushes you know it's just like what is going on here and to me that's like I thought I thought for sure at this point it has to be Soderbergh's in a room right now. I'm watching the movie. He's watching me and he's going like, "Yeah, you like it, you fucker. Lap it up. Lap up your rom-com tripe." You know? It's like, uh, yeah, it's not I get it, man, but that's not what this movie's even about. Well, that's it's frustrating. See, I like I see I loved that moment because I hated that moment. You know what I mean? Like so which is obnoxious. Like I like there are some times for me that this like fuck your tropes like point of view that Soderbergh's put into this right. movie actually super works and like the cheek to cheek is one of them where it's like this is so stupid and bad that you kind of have to laugh at it. Uh, of course, like, that's what it's it's absolutely intentional. There's right, no other way right. to take it. It's very intentional, and it does work because it makes you laugh at what rom coms are. Uh, but it doesn't, <laughs> and I guess so. That that's one of the few times where what I will call Soderbergh's actual aim uh, is accessible to people. There are a few times that yeah. it's accessible, and that's one of them. I would also say that the Hitler play is another time when it's kind of a it's kind oh, of accessible. Absolutely. So. Uh, you're right about that. I'm so glad you brought it up. Uh, but I, so just so that the audience doesn't get lost, uh, I want to say like, so let's come back and revisit both of those things at the end when I make my hot take on what this movie's about. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause I think it'll fit in, but if it doesn't, we can argue about it, which is fine. So, um, just to like, just to explain one more time, like another mislead element here. So the contrast in like mediums, as like I think everybody instinctively notices knows this, right? But like the way the film is set up, this DV cam world and this film world are supposed to comment on each other, right? They're supposed to illuminate each other, or at the very least, the DV cam world is supposed to make the rom com world uh, make us feel the artifice of it, and it doesn't, right? And like it intentionally doesn't, even though they do actually intersect in very obvious ways. Like we cut from the actual film being made to the behind the scenes of the film being made in DV cam. And it's like every bit as mundane and, and boring. Like, like that cut gives us no new information at all. Uh, and so like, you know, again, this is Soderbergh setting up like a way we're supposed to relate to the film, not delivering it. Like, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. 
which then makes us frustrated with the limitations of the convention that he chose, right? So, like, we're, if we're going to watch a DV cam movie, we're expecting truth because we're having to sit through, uh, like, you know, available light only and single takes, you know, where he has, mm-hmm. like, jump cuts. So, like, it's filmmaking that's very jarring compared to Hollywood filmmaking. Um, like, there's even times where people aren't on camera who should be on camera. Like, we're just not even covering the people who should be right. covered. And that's a thing that I think wears on an audience if we're not getting interesting content from it, you know? So in a sense, he's like sort of assaulting the audience's sense of story where Mm -hmm. they're like, wait, why, like, why is this so, why doesn't there anything here that I can grab onto? Right. Uh, Something that like something like adaptation did much better. Adaptation did a fucking great job of it. Absolutely. Uh, I totally agree with that. So, okay. So I've done a pretty good job, I think, of outlining the ways the movie fails to deliver, but also sets up uh, that it's going to deliver. Uh, yeah. So then the next question is like, so where does that leave us? Okay. So what, what are we doing with this movie? So here's where this is, my, this is Adam's hot take. Okay. I've read a bunch of articles on this. This is my heart, t- my hot take. I didn't really see this anywhere, by the way. Um, I didn't see exactly this take anywhere. So my take is this movie, Full Frontal, is purely about the artifice of storytelling. Like it's that is all that it's about. It's about storytelling and storytelling as a medium in film only. Uh, and to do that, he has to set up a bunch of meta conventions that don't resolve so that we start to look at the way the movie's made more than what the movie's saying. So here's some like support I would list to kind of this is what he's trying to do. Um, obviously, just the structure, right? So like because we have these inter- these like multiple narratives, right? These different threads of people that we're following, but they never tie together. It makes us look into the convention of documentary storytelling and ask, well, why did he do this? Why am I following this person if it doesn't matter? So we start to ask questions of the storyteller there. Why this? Why this tactic? Why this storytelling? Um, he puts some gigantic stars in this movie. Like, here's some people who are barely in it, but they're still in it. Brad Pitt, barely in the movie, but he's like the hottest star in the world at the time. David Duchovny, one scene, basically. I think two, actually, if you count his dead body. His uh, dead body, yeah. David Fincher is in the background of one of these movies. He's a he's a he's the fake director. He's of the, the fake movie, director of the movie. movie, exactly. And he's only there to make a meta joke about how many takes that he does. Mm-hmm. Right? That's his whole purpose. So mm-hmm. the fact that he takes these gigantic stars and then renders them in this smeared, horrible uh, medium where, like, you can barely make them out. Right? Like, a lot of people didn't even know David Fincher was the person in that movie. Right? Uh, mm-hmm. it, I think it, that's drawing dramatic attention to the medium. Right, because you're not able to enjoy your movie stars the way that you're expected to, the way they you did in the way that you did in like Ocean's Eleven, right? He yeah, obs- he's trying to zag. Right, he obscures them. So another yeah. thing that he does, and we haven't talked about it yet, is he makes intentional mistakes. There are intentional mistakes in this movie. Uh, there are obviously bad edits, like not just jump cuts, but edits that don't work. Mm. Um, there are tons of times where the film is overexposed. So, like, when I say overexposed, mm-hmm. what that means is you can't see people's faces because there's too much light on them. Yeah, so it's like Three Kings up in here. Yeah, right. Well, even Three Kings, it was like a look. 
You know, mm-hmm. this movie, it's not a look. It's just like sometimes they open the windows and like, oh, now the scene's overlit. So I can't see these people's mouths moving when they're yeah. talking. You know, um, he also shoots scenes from really far away. Uh, so that's another way of denying us the intimacy of their faces. Right. So you see like all these conventions, like denying us intimacy with the experience, like we're kept outside of it over and over and over again. Um, mm. At one point, he actually has to raise the gain on one specific image because he didn't expose it correctly. So, like, like remember that scene where the dog eats the brownies? There's like a little circle yeah. that pops up where he's like, he has to raise the gain, and it looks—it's like even a student film wouldn't have this in it. To no, like, it's it's great a filmmaker joke. Yes, yeah. it's a filmmaker joke. It's a filmmaker I wouldn't joke. say it's great. Yeah, though. it's super isolated. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Abe and, got furious and rightly so, but yeah. it's like he made he did it on purpose. It's so easy to fix that. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, all right, man. <laughs> yeah, all right, dude. Um, all again, right, dude. he never shoots any coverage. And remember, there is no documentary crew here. There, like, there's no interviewer. There's right. no like the film is clearly not like there's no cameras that these people are interacting with. Mm-hmm. So even though you see the cameraman bumping and jostling like they're a real life cameraman, the film plays as though this is dramatic fiction, meaning it's not really a documentary. So the fact that we don't have coverage, by which I mean different angles to properly like see everybody in the scene, is it's like, yeah, he's yeah. violating both conventions. Not only is he violating the documentary convention, he's also right. violating the camera convention, like the do- the filmmaking conventions. Um, mm-hmm. he has horrible zooms. There's a zoom on a building at one point that's like, what? Uh, and then like he cuts right in the middle of it. Incredible. Um, mm-hmm. also, and this is where I got really mad about the red letter thing. Rendezvous. He has that, the really bad colored, uh, dress and the, uh, and the envelope, like those two things match up. Um, all these mistakes bring our attention to a thing that as moviegoers, we never think about, which is who made this and what are they trying to do? Right? right, it's the only conversation you can have about the movie and get anywhere. Right, right, and when you look at all the critics, that's what they say. They they peer, they talk exclusively about him and the choices he made. And so, if that's what he was trying to do, what does he want to say about the artifice of filmmaking and storytelling? And here is where it's like I'm not totally sure, but I think. Uh, this is sort of a satire on meaning in movies in general, right? Both meaning in the story that's being told a la Rendezvous and meaning in the process of how stories are made. I think both of them are artificial and fake in his mind, which is why we have like why he undercuts them all the time. Um, it's also why just narratively his screenwriter, Carl, is fired from this magazine job because he doesn't drink beer the right way. Um, or why when Lee fires people, it feels like actors' workshops for no reason, right? Um, it's why the, the out-of-work like actor is putting on this horrible Sound and Fury play, which again is a play on the phrase Sound and Fury signifying nothing, right? The story here is empty. The point of this is empty. And that's one of the few points where the audience is with the filmmaker and gets that, Um it's why we're not sure if the guy who's playing Hitler is a full-fledged maniac or just a person trying to become a maniac to play Hitler, right? Uh, it's also why some of the writers' dreams and their writings constantly pop up in the documentary because there is no real. There's nothing that there is no real. Nothing's real. Nothing's meaningful, as you've been saying. But I think that's actually a satire in this film 
because it's about people who try to tell stories and the business that creates stories, right? Um, mm-hmm. That's that's Adam's hot take. People might not agree with it. That's okay. Um, I think there's a really great scene that's what I would call the movie in a nutshell. And that scene is, there's one sex scene. It's with Catherine Keener and Blair Underwood. Um, it's where we find out they're having an affair. It's in the sex scene, it's filmed intentionally out of per, out of focus, right? And it's filmed through a lattice that must be on the headboard of the bed. That's like the only place it could actually be. Mm-hmm. And so as we're watching it, we're trying to watch the sex, right? Like that's that's why you're watching it. Like let's let, let's watch the sex. He obscures it with focus, right? But he obscures it with focus, so we don't get the full frontal we're supposed to get. And instead, we're asking, wait a minute, why is the camera behind the bed? How can that be a documentary choice? How do they get this shot? Right? You start to realize that the whole artifice is there. It's a perfect encapsulation of what this movie's about. Um, so now is the question, why did Soderbergh make this movie? Um, and I'm speculating here, um, but my thought is, I think Soderbergh is ultimately not that comfortable being a blockbuster filmmaker. Um, he makes blockbusters. He's made some sense. But I think that in his heart is an indie filmmaker who just doesn't want to compromise, doesn't want to tell these mainstream stories, wants to like only wants to explore and like make cool stuff that interests him exclusively. Um, and because of that, he's constantly sort of at war with himself. If you've kept up with him, he's threatened to quit or retire. I don't know how many times, like 10, 15 times, a lot of times. Um, it's why he's constantly experimenting with mediums. He's like one of the most experimental with mediums that we see uh, in the business. Um, when he won his Academy Award for Best Director, he instead of thanking the people who made the film, which he said he was going to do privately, he thanked anybody who spends a part of their day creating. Like, and he went on a whole diatribe. And I remember at the time feeling that, that was pretentious. And then, like maybe three weeks ago, I was talking to somebody at my school who was a teacher, and he recounted that as like being a really meaningful moment for him. He's like, "Yeah, man." That's what it's all about. You know, I was like, huh, that's interesting. Uh, I know, right? He said, by the way, Soderbergh said in his speech, I think this world would be unlivable without art. Um, Uh So like that is to say, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not venerating him. I'm just explaining what I think he is. No, I think he believes that. Yeah. It's a laudable opinion. I think so. um, As a person who wants to make money as an artist, but I think that Soderbergh is the, the artist artist, by which I mean he mm-hmm. is more he is just as interested in the forms as he is in the substance. He's like a Picasso in that way. Like Picasso is almost more interested in the medium than the message, right? And I think Soderbergh is like that. Uh so like he has a bunch of movies where that is true. For instance, Sex Lies and Videotape. The camera becomes the avenue for meaning in that story. Um, mm-hmm. Girlfriend Experience, others, this movie, etc. Um, yeah, so- I was going to bring up Girlfriend Experience, and I think that that I think there's like a trilogy here, you know. Well, that's what's interesting is that this movie was marketed as a sequel to Sex Lies and Sex Videotape. Lies and videotape. Which, yeah, no, it's obvious. Yeah, yeah, but I've watched Sex Lies and Videotape fairly recently because I wanted to be sure I was right about this. Sex Lies and Videotape is a very accessible, direct movie. Yes. Yes. Um, it's in, it's not obscure. Yeah. In fact, it's really uh, – it's sort of a – the cool thing about it is the approach that it has to secrets and intimacy is unusual, and mm-hmm. it's really cool. Um, 
this is the opposite of that. This is like, what if I try What if you thought I was going to give you intimacy and instead I only gave you the camera? You know, yeah, this is what makes uh, Soderbergh a little interesting to me. And I'm sure yeah. to you or other people who value his movies in mass is that like in the girlfriend experience as well. Um, this movies, all of his movies seem to be occupied with like, you can kind of bear, bear it down to one thought, which is like, what are you getting out of this? Like, yeah. what are we all getting out of this thing we call life? You know, uh, but it's, you know, seen through and fu- funneled down and funneled down and funneled down until it's a question like, what is Catherine Keener getting from her uh, husband, David Hyde Pierce? You know, like right. that right. these questions telescope. Um, and the problem is that this movie doesn't. Mm hmm. That's what makes it very frustrating. I, I think, yeah, or it, it, yeah, it. He doesn't do the job that directors do, which is like seems, lead you to yeah. what he wants you to think about it. Instead, he forces you to scratch on the outside of this, trying to get in. You're like, what? Well, let me in, you know, and he won't do yeah, it. Yeah, but it's let me in, which is one thing. But I'm o- I'm okay with movies that just kind of ask questions, and that's all they leave. In fact, some of the strongest films have made with that leaving more questions than they had answers uh in that like a you know obscure way that this movie is also doing but my problem is that like if you put it in a theater it's for people it's not for you Agreed. so the message that you do deliver what is available from the witnessing of the movie you that needs to there needs to be an accounting for that yeah and the fact that he delivers a very tangible message in this movie with context clues with the, you know, like we were mentioning with Julia Roberts and Blair Underwood, like that relationship is very focused on the D uh, mystification of the Hollywood, you know, id the concept that the, to give our honor glamor, to this shit is nonsense. It's all make em ups. Even the behind the scenes celebrity narratives that you have in your head, that's all fake too. It's all performance. Okay, that's something I can understand. That's what you're trying to say, right? And he's like, nope. <laughs> that's what I feel like his like last his last yeah. uh, you know kind of punctuation on the moment is. I'm not saying that though. It's not all that. I you don't have any. F- He's he's taking away from us any feeling of catharsis. Yep. There's no, you know, comeuppance. Right. There's no, uh, and I, and I think and I understand that that's what he's trying to kind of do is he's trying to say any of the release that you get from the uh, the ne- like the structural narrative that we have built that we do time and time again the idea that these have things have consequence even that is a falsity. Cause life is just a series of things happening. And, uh, and I respect that. And that's, you know, there's, there's a little bit of that there, but it's like, I can't help. Like that is actually a very interesting thought to put like, I guess all of story on notice or whatever. Yeah. But here's the thing. You put it in a theater. It's for people. It's not for you. Well, see, it's, I think that's so uh, why. So tell us what you're telling us. Be, be a speaker. Don't be an observer. Cause that's what you're making out of us. 
Just like, just observe. Yeah, we were doing that out there and it was going fine. We hate it out there. We came in here for something else. <laughs> I love this because uh, I think I, I think it sort of exposes a, a, a hypocrisy in every artist, right? Which is that like, uh, to be an artist, you have to sort of pursue this like singular voice in yourself uh, to, you know, to a fault at times. Right. I mean, especially at his level, mm-hmm. I think you have to. And I think this movie is definitely him doing that. And yet, mm-hmm. as you said, our business presumes and I think uh, movie audiences presume that. Um, well, yeah, but if you're going to make me if you're going to put it in front of me, I want to get something out of it that I can understand, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, him saying that doesn't matter to a true artist. Like, that's really kind of what he's arguing for here. And uh, I don't know. I mean, like, I certainly made that ar- that argument uh, when it came to, say, Dark Souls, the video game Dark Souls. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's kind of, there's like a luminarative notion about the Sisyphusal. Is that the right? Well, is that how you say dark, it? S- Sisyphusian. Uh, Sisyphusian? Yeah. Dark Souls, it, uh, my argument against that game as a fran- or that franchise is that, like, I don't care how cool the story is if I put all the pieces together. I don't get all the pieces put together for me in the course of telling of like playing this video game. So the story doesn't isn't good because it's not presented for me in a way I can understand. That's an argument I will make. Right. And yet here I am defending hypocritically uh, or at least I guess presenting uh, an artist who says, no, I don't have to do that. In fact, I can undermine that expectation entirely as long as there's a coherence to it. And that is still an artistic enterprise. Uh, Mm. And and I don't know. I mean, you know, like, I don't want to say this is like a Marcel Duchamp's urinal or anything. Uh, I mean, but it's closer to that than like it is uh, to a grand oil painting or whatever. Right. I mean, I'd say Duchamp's is better because he's at least definitely singular having a singular point. That's just an emphasis on a that's legible. Right. Is art sometimes like what is art? Right. Deschamps making a point you can clearly remove from it. And this is is murky. Like the point of that, the point of the toilet is that he's like, you're not, when you're looking at the toilet, you're not looking at the toilet. You're looking at every other art you've ever seen in your life. Right. That's what he's asking you to do. He's saying like, it's the mantle, it's the precipice, the pedestal we put uh, on art. That is the question. It's not the thing itself. It could be literally anything, but I didn't have a nothing i had a toilet and that's so like a singular like thought thread i can follow i understand where it's coming from it's not up its own ass that's why it was effective it's up its own ass i mean it's up its own ass but i mean it's still accessible yeah okay yeah uh, it's uh importance of being earnest you know like they're arts for art's sake all that whole argument these kind of uh, broad strokes in art where art kind of puts itself to task and says like, yeah, we're doing this thing. That's kind of, it's usually, I think it's egotistical for artists to make, uh, to make stories that are about the ego of the artist. Like it's like, you are putting yourself on task, not because you're trying to do something where you're saying like artists are all kind of full of shit, right? No, you're doing it once again to talk more about yourself. 
I've, and uh, I, find... I don't think this movie is doing that, but I do think that there's a notion to that kind of thing. Is that even though he's trying to see the truth here and say, it's all fake, it's all fake, it's all fake, nothing is real, that's beautiful, but you're still saying that something is true. So you're right about the hypocrisy. I just don't think that he, uh, Soderbergh is aware of the hypocrisy that he's actually uh, I, guilty of. I think he is. Uh, I, I mean, like, I, I maybe know, I'm man. giving him too much credit, but the fact that he can sort of effortlessly vacillate between a project like this and then Solaris and then Ocean's Eleven suggests that he's definitely aware of that. I mean, and I think maybe it's he completely... Is. Maybe he is. I mean, the fact that he maybe can I'm missing something. still makes... Well, I don't think you are missing anything. I think you just don't uh, you don't like that. You know what I mean? Like, And I think that's fine. Yeah. Uh, I, by the way, like, so just this is a spoiler for people who may not have shown up here for this. But I want to talk briefly about the Museum of Jurassic Technology, which exists in Los Angeles. So if you don't want to hear this, skip two, right. two minutes ahead or whatever. No, no this is fascinating. So is great... the Museum of Jurassic Technology, I used to live near it in Culver City. Um, it's a museum where you're there looking at these art pieces, and yet the entire experience of it is uncomfortable and sort of like inaccessible and opaque. And after a while, what you realize is, oh, this is a museum that's about the that sort of satirizing museums, you know, and like mm -hmm. the way that museums put and curate things and sort of structure things and like the meaninglessness of that. I think it's satirizing um, history. It's just using the museum as the hundred percent, hundred percent. You know, but it is a meta narrative about the thing you're observing. But it is also about history. I agree. Just like this movie, I would argue, is about art. You, you know what I mean? Right. Like, uh, so I agree with that. But, but like the function of museums, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. And this, so and spoilers. I think that we would all be maybe because it's not in a movie theater, so we didn't pay a general audience to go there. People kind of go with different expectations, and so maybe the whole conversation here is: the, did we not set up the proper expectations for Full Frontal? Like, does Soderbergh bear some responsibility? I'm going to put that in quotes for not preparing his audience for what he was going to deliver. I think so. Okay, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about because that. Because answer your own question. Um, I would say no, uh, but I also think that uh, this movie—I kind of like this movie. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't love it though. I, knew, I think it's I knew secretly. I liked it a little it bit. Why along. would I talk about it if I didn't like it at all? Come on, I'm not. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. But I, but I recognize all everything you're saying about it, right? And mm. I've, I've also watched this movie 15 times. I've watched it a lot of times. Good lord. Yeah, because there's something about it. I'm like, why? Like I like, and I feel like this time I kind of came oh, to a. To an answer I kind of liked, um, but it, it also could be just Adam's invention. I could I can acknowledge no, that. I, I think that's I mean, like most artists have said before, uh, you know, like art is in the eye of the beholder. Man, everyone right. takes what they want right. out of it, and if someone's getting stuff out of this movie, I'm not. No one's in your way. No, no, and like, nobody's ever like this movie and all that. Nobody's ever. No, I'm not saying this to you. Me. I'm just saying one. Yeah, but. Man, it's tough for me yeah. because I because I do do I do this thing with story in my mind, uh, right? And I know Michael has the same kind of thing. Right. We, we've talked about it so many times. It's one of the reasons we collaborate a lot. Of course, which is that story means something, and yeah, it may be sappy and like people can roll their eyes or make the jerk off gesture because like, Oh yeah. It's sentimental stories means they do. They're the literal way in which the past talks back to us and tells us things. 
I'm not talking about movies. I'm talking about stories right. and movies just happen to be the, you know, in the, the, cur- the, the capitalistic way. endeavor that technology is allowed to make into enjoyment, entertainment devices. The, I understand it, that that is where we've come. It's the current, like, it's the current campfire these types. It's the current campfire. But these types of movies are trying to do something more. So when you, when you play with that and you like fuck with it, I expect to like, at least think about it a little bit more. And this movie did not make me think it made me react. And then it made me think that I hadn't thought enough. And then I thought about it and I realized that, no, you were wrong. You were gaslighting me movie. You don't have a point. So, so you basically just trolled me and it, that makes me angry. It, it makes it, it's, it's like, fake news it's like yeah. let me just make up facts yeah i have a point come into this door come into this room with me and i'll give you a show and you get in the show and it's like it's a cage you're the show it's just like what the fuck are you doing man so i don't know my here's my last thing i guess i'll say about this yeah. is that i wish i had a career that i could fail this hard and still have a career <laughs> like i that well that's all i, I really have to I say i think that uh you and i were both allowed to fail quite a bit at cracked uh you know i don't know if i ever made anything that you would make people as frustrated as you are about this movie mm-hmm. but uh we failed plenty um mm-hmm. I agree, though. It's definitely a luxury project. I mean, my God, look at all the people he got for it uh, to make a statement Mm -hmm. that, again, it took me a lot of viewings and a lot of thought to get anything coherent out of it. Um, And I that's normally a red flag for me uh, uh, as a listener to content or thinker of like, man, you're just working hard for something that doesn't work. Uh, so people are mm-hmm. more than more than allowed to dismiss that statement as being uh, ineffectual or the creation of my desperate attempt to like the Soderbergh movie. I'm fine with all that, um, but I do think it's there. Uh, I think it's. I think that yeah. the reading is there. I think it, the. I believe this guy knows the craft that well that he can make these statements, uh, and he can intentionally suck all the joy out of the film to make you ask these questions and i think he did that inarguably whether he successfully communicated meaning that i'm not so sure um right i think he did really he did think about this no question there's no question in my mind this guy really is is really smart as a filmmaker and he plays on an advanced level yeah there's no denying and very and like honestly very talented in a broad way uh so maybe I should give him more credit than that. I just no, no. I think it frustrates me when I don't understand, and maybe that's my insecurity, and that's what you're all hearing from me. <laughs> but uh, you know, like no, uh, I, th- I don't know. I think that that what you're having is a valid artistic experience, and I think it's a especially right. no, but, <laughs> no, 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 no. But wait a minute, that's true okay. though. Right, like I, I think that uh, confronting, that he, confronting this, that I was, this is the, this is the end game, possibly for Soderbergh is what it you're could saying. be, like what I'm, yes. how I'm responding. Yes, angry at the disappointed movie by for it. not, yeah, disappointed yeah. at the movie. So he, so you're saying that on the on the table is that he made a movie where he wanted to disassociate his audience from the enjoyment factor of movies and consider and it's go craft. straight for 
and consider its okay. craft. I believe but that's possible. Specifically considering its craft in a way where it's like, I'm going to always avoid doing the craft work. Like, I'm not going to do the actual thing. I'm not going to do the work. I'm going to do the opposite. I mean, yeah. Of the Look, dude, the guy, the guy is an Academy Award winning director who just made Ocean's Eleven, which was wildly popular. Yes. I do think he knows. I think he's trying to do that. Yes. Yeah, okay. I do. So the goal, the goal was to make people who like story angry. Well, I, that, I, I don't know if I would uh, agree to that particular reconstruction, but I would say okay. the goal is to frustrate people who went there expecting an intimate or sort of raw or lurid or frankly any narrative story and instead gave them something that was more of a, huh, what was that about? And I would say that I've tied together a lot of plot and structure elements to get meaning from this. I don't think he expects mm-hmm. that people are all going to do that. Right. You know, but also, like, I mean, again, I'm going to go back to Picasso. I don't think Soderbergh is as good as Picasso, just to be clear. I don't think Picasso. Yeah, I've seen Picasso. Yeah, I don't think Picasso gave a shit <laughs> if, like, 80 or 90% of the people who strolled past Guernica were like, that looks bad. You know what I mean? Because, like, they did, probably. You know what I mean? Uh, hey, Picasso, this is worse than 2002's Full Frontal. Hey, paint a real face, you asshole. Paint a real face. Hey, Pablo, <laughs> get the fuck out of here with your painting. No, but he doesn't give a yeah. shit, right? He doesn't care. He don't, right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, and the things I know about Soderbergh is that he'd probably take glee at this conversation. Oh, yeah, he's a real troll. He, like that's, the, that's what makes me so delighted in this is I think Soderbergh shares a lot of the Abe spirit. You know, he, he's yeah, just... It's, and yeah, it's... I think that a lot of that spirit is that you kind of look the fool sometimes, and maybe that's what he's, he's pulling a fast one on us. So game respect game in that regard. I'm not going to be insecure enough to be like, or I don't think that I'm driven by my insecurities no. enough that I'm going to be like, it makes me angry specifically that I was hoodwinked. Well, no, I mean like I, I can be, I can also play the fool. And if that, this is the intention of the movie, you know, that's fine. Uh, I just think that that's a bad thing to put in a theater. Right. Right. I mean, and I've made, again, when I don't like it, that's the argument I make. Uh, sure. So yeah. I, I think that, uh, that's why you and I try to be careful about limiting what a person is allowed to do and say artistically. Like, you know, like, uh, I, I do think that the, the capitalist market had its final say with full frontal, you know, like, like most people didn't even see it. Uh, or when they do see it, they hate it. Um, the true barometer of success money. Well, right. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, but also like his career definitely took some right turns after this. Like I, yeah, you know, but I think he's. Oh, he's yeah, fine. I think he's, he's fine. He's fine because he was always kind of regional filmmaker. He always was the kind who he's like, I prefer to make movies about like small towns. Well, he, ch- or small he chose ecosystems. to be that. He chose the to be big that. ecosystem. Yeah, I think he did. Uh, uh, the big ecosystems, like what is the nature of life, or like what is Hollywood and this whole culture. He didn't really. He doesn't really want to put them to task anymore. Nah. Uh, it did start that way though with sex lies and videotape and this uh, and this movie a little the, bit and this movie yeah. yeah and I think the girlfriend experience he's also taking to task the disassociation of sexuality and intimacy uh, that's a big one that's yeah. a big thing to tackle yeah. 
Um, but sometimes, like, I don't know. He's he's just wants to have a romp. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he does make fun movies that are just fun sometimes. Right. Like, I would say even Contagion is just a fun movie. Uh, yeah, or Logan's I think, Lucky, I believe. I think Contagion is actually a really personal film, even though it has uh, the stakes are very uh worldly like in of the big like he's focused on very small stories okay um yeah, i can go with that yeah. i mean oceans 11 uh remains sort of i think his biggest movie i think he hates i think he hates oceans 11. Uh, well he keeps doing it though so i don't know how much does he hate it i think he, he likes he likes comfort of money who doesn't well, <laughs> i mean look what you would make oceans 11 so would i and and yes. one thing he's really good at is because he isn't sucked into the the politics of making these blockbuster movies. He gets these fantastic performances out of actors. I don't know how he gets these. People. I know how he gets them like, because he must just they be want to do artistic so good in movies. The room. No, they want to do artistic movies. Like it's but like how does how do you get everyone for Ocean's Eleven? Because, well, I think that's the sales pitch, right? The, the sales pitch is: look, we're getting Clooney, we're, we're getting, getting all everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you should hear some of the people who were gonna be in the movie. Uh, Luke and Luke right, and right. Uh, Owen Wilson were going to be the brothers. Uh, yeah, they, they, so that was the whole idea of that film. Was like, let's get every big star in the world, and we're going to do a movie star movie. And he fucking did it. You know, <clears throat> fuck yeah, it. he nailed it. That's a movie star's movie. Like the, you done it again, Soderbergh. Yeah, right. So I <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't need to venerate him anymore. I really like Soderbergh. Although I will say, I stopped watching every one of his movies after this movie. Uh, there you go, baby. You know, but uh, Traffic will always be a special movie for me. It's what he wanted. Yeah, right, right, right. Stop watching my movies. <laughs> he's, he's playing five D chess over here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's um. Yeah, I didn't like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this has been a small beans endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash small beans. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash small beans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the small beans grow into huge huge giant monster beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe, or tell a friend about us. We love you. <laughs>